Hello and welcome to the OSBPG Foundation podcast. I'm your regular host, Andrew O'Shea, um, recording the uh, intro to this podcast in my barn with a very expect- expectant um, Cynthia, who's called Cynthia. Um, you can hear her saying hello. Um, she's not enjoying the heat too much, but she is in the shade and nice and cool in here at least. So um, hoping to see some piglets in the next three or four days, but uh, we shall see. So this podcast is a replay of the event we held earlier this month, um, that being June 2022, with a Dominic Charman, um, who spoke to us um, around um, sl- the slaughter process, your meat quality carcass, etc., um, and also rules and regulations at a high level around setting up your own um, butchery shop, um, you know, or butchery area for butchering and selling your own produce, which was really interesting. Before we get to that recording, just just a few updates for you. Hello, Cynthia. Yes, yes, you want to be part of the podcast as well, do you? Good, good, good. Um, so uh, this coming weekend sees the release of our um, summer 2022 newsletter uh, coming out in a slightly different format than the, the normal as as we move to the to a more um uh user friendly um format um that makes reading of what is you know a fairly substantial newsletter every month a lot easier for our supporters so keep an eye on that for those that have registered landing in your mailbox if you do want to subscribe to the quarterly newsletter and receive all our other updates direct via email for our events etc head over to our website oxford and black pig group.org um, and down the right hand side just below the twitter feed there is a sign up form that allows you to sign up for the email alerts sorry for the emails um, for the newsletters etc anyway so without further ado here's the replay of the dominic Sharman event very much everybody for attending. Um, so this talk, um, is basically as most of you know, has come about to the various questions that many of you have asked on the OSB Red Report Group and on the charity. So we're very fortunate to have Dominic Charman with us tonight, um, who's been involved in the pig industry for what some 20 years and across three continents working with sow units from 60 to 4,500, both indoor and outdoor. His knowledge spans from on-farm work, sales, nutrition, feed trials, and works together with helping the corporate pig farmer, whereby his um, expertise and strategy and diversification is paramount. So Dominic is a qualified slaughterman, I think I'm right in that, and advises on emergency cull planning, abattoir optimization, and design, and works closely with the Animal and Plant Health Agency on various projects. So tonight, Dominic will be discussing factors affecting uh, meat quality on farm and in the abattoir, the slaughter process, traceability and the slaughter impacts on the meat quality. Dominic will also touch on the Food Standard Agency rules and regulations, setting up and operating your own butchery. So as you can see, we've got quite a lot to get through and um, we're in for a treat. So I can now pass you over to Dominic Charman of Charman Agricultural. When, when, When are we supposed to finish? Just so I know. Um, we have got it for, I think we've got it up until um, nine o'clock. That's fine. That's all right. It's just so when I start rambling, I know how long I can ramble for. That's fine. Okay. Um, I think we're going to take questions in the chat box as we go along. So fire questions out. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll put some to the slides are all basically just bullet points just for us to talk around as a group. 
Um, so there's not sort of any any spectacularly interesting visual content there or anything like that. But we'll just I'll share those now and then we'll and Dom, can we clarify that you because you you work across the whole of the UK, you'll be touching on as well as England, but Scotland. Um, yeah, actually, and actually, the, these these particular bits of legislation, um, if they're not, if it's not the same agency you deal with, there is still a requirement to do the same. Basically, the legislation will cover it. Is the butchery stuff? Effectively, if it's not exactly the same piece of legislation, they've basically adopted it into law. It's much like the welfare. The, for example, the Welsh welfare codes are basically the English ones translated into Welsh. Um, there is there is no difference, although I think they haven't been updated since the new welfare codes came out. So the because the legislation behind it is still EVU or UK legislation, uh, it's just local interpretation and occasionally local enforcement that varies slightly. Um, I will just carry out everything because we're being recorded. These these are uh, complex issues. There's the things around butchery and stuff like that. There is a requirement to be licensed. Obviously, a requirement to be to be sort of um, wholesome and all of those type of things. I will give a, a bit of a background now, but each case is normally individual, and I can provide a bit of feedback here. But I would what I would say is if you're in any doubt, and I have it on the slide somewhere, is to seek either advice from from law enforcement so the fsa or um training standards or from a from an expert uh, i'm not just touting for business there but of course you know that as well so right let me just share this so okay can we see that in presentation mode yeah brilliant uh yeah so i think we've already covered that we, we cover a whole range of things um in the pig industry uh started in pigs when i was 16 uh, working on farms um, probably one of the biggest units I worked on is I managed the finishing side of a uh, four and a half thousand cell outdoor unit in New Zealand, biggest outdoor unit in the Southern Hemisphere at the time. And um, we had around 56,000 head of stock from piglets up to breeding boars uh, and represented about 10% of the New Zealand industry at the time uh, on one site. So that was quite a big, um, quite a big business. So we'll, we'll launch straight into, um, into abattoirs. Um, I don't know what people want to want to know, but we'll do a bit of a whistle stop tour of, of the sort of where the mainstream pigs go and then a bit more in depth into the smaller ones and then just a quick run through the slaughter process because I'm, I'm not sure how familiar people are with it um if i'm if i start seeing eyes rolling and things like that i'll, uh, I'll move to the next bit so there are seven seven large pig abattoirs in the uk five of which are single species so really I, I say sorry mainland uk there is there are two in northern ireland as well um there are five dedicated pig-only abattoirs and then two large multi-species ones. All of these abattoirs are integrated in some way, either up or downstream in the supply chain. So five of them have their own pigs, their own breeding sales and their own finishing pigs. Two of them are actually owned by a retailer or owned by a supermarket. So five of them are, are downstream or upstream integrated and one of them is downstream integrated. Uh, kill capacities range sort of depending on the day, to be fair, but sort of the, the, a slow day in, in one of the smaller ones would be around four and a half thousand animals and, and a big day for one of the biggest would be about 7,000. They tend to only kill five days a week and they tend to only kill on a day shift, apart from when we get to times like Christmas and that sort of thing where the demand conventionally goes up. Of course, at the minute, I don't know how, how aware people would be, all bets are off in terms of kill numbers. Um, the, the sort of commercial guys are not getting their contracts at kill numbers taken. I have one customer who has 15,000 pigs backed up on their farm that shouldn't be, that should have already gone. Um, and they're sort of not getting through the pigs. Um, all of these large abattoirs use a CO2 stunning method. 
Um, there was there were two that were still using uh, automated electric about two years ago, but that's finished now. They're all on CO2 as a as a main method, and then it's normally electric as a backup if the CO2 goes down. All of those abattoirs are also blast chilling, and I'll get into that later when we talk about mead quality. And the five dedicated abattoirs have export licenses for heads, trotters, uh, bungs, various bits of material that we wouldn't use in the UK to send to China. Uh, although a lot of those either have been suspended or are sort of in limbo since COVID, uh, because it was as soon as COVID hit, the Chinese suspended the licenses. Most, uh, there are situations in which they will kill a pig privately, but it tends to be when a commercial producer has sent pigs and says, I'll oh, come and collect one. Uh, generally, they don't take any private kill. So for you guys, less relevant. It's just to understand the sort of scale of the, of the commercial industry. Tom, there was one question here that says that yeah. uh, what's the difference between upstream versus downstream? Um, so, uh, downstream would be from the abattoir to the retailer or the food processor to the retailer. So Morrison's own two abattoirs. Um, so they would be downstream. Wow. Yeah. The abattoir is upstream from the from the supermarket, but the supermarket's downstream, as it were, from the abattoir. The others are what I would call upstream integrated from the abattoir, which is they have their own pigs. So Morrison's don't have any pigs. All the other abattoirs have pigs. But Morrison's own a business called Woodheads, which is um, has three abattoirs, uh, one in Scotland, two in England, one in Spalding, one in Colne in Lancashire, and then one up in um, one up near uh, Aberdeen Turriff, but that doesn't actually kill pigs. Um, and those two sites in the UK that kill pigs for Morrison's are multi-species, so they have cattle and sheep lines as well, uh, which mm-hmm. just as a matter of interest is why they don't have a licence to export to China, because China won't accept export from multi-species abattoirs. They're all single species. Okay. Where uh, are the seven large abattoirs, Don? Have they- uh, so there's one in Hull, which is, is called Preston, confusingly. There is one. Uh, there are two in Spalding, one of which is a Morrison's one, and one is a BQP or a Tulip oh. or... Whatever, whatever they're called this week. Uh, there is one in Colne. Then there is one in uh, near Bristol at a site called Westerly, which is another BQP slash tulip abattoir. And there's one in Watton, which is um, a Cranswick abattoir, which is sort of in East Anglia. And then how many more are we missing? How many have I just counted through? Oh, Carrow at Moulton. Yeah. Carrow at Moulton, what, what is still known as Moulton Bacon Factory, uh, which is Carrow. So they're the, they're the seven big ones in England. And then there are uh, there is a larger one which was sort of owned by Tulip and is now kind of part owned by the Scottish in uh, uh, sort of up the, up the west coast towards Aberdeen, which is called Brecon, which is uh, basically spends more time breaking down than it does actually killing pigs. And then there's one in Turriff, a large one in Turriff, but they don't take pigs anymore. So they're dead. Do you have anything down here in, in the west country? I live on and down in Devon. Um, not not a large pig abattoir. So the largest pig processor, the the, the nearest large pig processor to you would be Tulip at Westerly near Bristol. So they'd be. It's a very odd place to have a pig abattoir as well because the pigs generally commercial pig industry is focused down the down the east coast, is in Yorkshire or in East Anglia, which is why the abattoirs tend to be in those regions. So actually, um, they're hauling pigs. A lot of pigs from East Anglia over to Westerly, um, which is a, obviously a fairly long sort of distance. But they do have quite a few pigs. Um, I don't know how many of you would be aware of the Stockcroft business. Um, Sally Stockings are a very large outdoor producer sort of family business who are linked into Tulip. And they, they're all sort of through the West Country, through Oxfordshire, that type of area, mm. uh, Dorset and that type of thing. They, they're 
sending pigs into Westerly. So it's um, and there are pigs coming out of Wales now into Westerly, but few and far between. There aren't really any commercial producers in Wales. There are probably two or three uh, sort of two hundred sale units, but there aren't many sort of big sites in Wales anymore. There used to be some very large ones, but they they all went out because of the the issues with transport. Um, you will probably be be aware, even more so than I am, smaller abattoirs are are sort of disappearing and are fewer and far between. Largely because of the legislative burden, it becomes more and more complex to run an abattoir and more and more expensive to run an abattoir every year. Um, our insurance to cover us as a business just to shoot pigs uh, for sort of either human consumption or for emergencies on farm uh, is, is about three times as expensive as our insurance for everything else we do. Um, and then if you scale that up to the size of an abattoir, that is, that is insane. And it's actually becoming harder and harder to insure abattoirs because they, they are both... Not that, you know, nowhere is inherently dangerous to work, but because there are risks in the workplace, i.e. gas, electric, whatever, sort of the stun method, you know, they are by definition able to kill pigs, which means you could accidentally kill people. Um, as has happened in some of the sort of chicken processing plants where people have been accidentally gassed and that type of thing. Um, you know, it's becoming harder and harder to make a small abattoir pay, which is why we've seen them disappear. You know, as, as the mainstream industry has become more and more sort of focused on those seven large abattoirs, you know, because because every commercial farm now sends pigs to those abattoirs. I mean, there is there is one which is sort of still family owned and is a smaller one in Wolverhampton, uh, which probably kills maybe a couple of thousand, maybe a thousand a day. And they will still do private killing, that type of thing. Mm. But basically all of the other pigs go into those seven abattoirs. You know, 90, they will be killing 90, 95 percent of the, of the UK industry pigs. So these smaller guys make it hard, it's harder and harder for it to pay because they're not picking up the business. Um. There are also less pigs in livestock markets than there used to be. So the abattoirs that used to sort of go to livestock markets, buy a wagon load of pigs and kill them and sell them to butchers tend to sort of not, not bother anymore. Uh, pigs, some of the abattoirs that used to kill pigs, you know, the smaller multi-species local abattoirs will no longer kill pigs because you need uh, more equipment, mm -hmm. obviously. So you have to, we'll go through it in a minute, you know, you have to be able to scold them, to, to singe them, all of that type of thing. Um, they are a slightly more complex kill and actually the, the handling equipment for when they're alive is also different, you know. Um, obviously, a beef line is generally dedicated, but it's not sort of just a case of running animals through it, you know, running pigs through a sheep line. You more or less need dedicated equipment nowadays. Um, there is a mobile abattoir that's in the process of being built, um, varying degrees of success. I actually worked on a project to do this years and years and years ago because we, um, we did a lot of this type of thing in New Zealand. It's perfectly legally possible, um, it's the it's the complexity of basically folding it all into the back of a lorry uh, and then because abattoirs as a physical site are licensed and that's what the stamp that goes on the animals is linked to is that physical site and legally that stamp has to be kept on us in a safe on site uh it's effectively to do with that you know in conversations with afro and defra around this they're not they're not opposed as such but obviously their concern is you know they have to make sure that either you know, it's not sort of casually spreading disease around the country and also that it's not allowing sort of grey meat into the into the industry. You know, it would be far easier to sort of slide an animal through a mobile abattoir that perhaps shouldn't have gone to an abattoir uh, than it would through a through a fixed site. All abattoirs are required to have a vet on site, either constantly. So this is a ministry vet, so an APHA vet and personnel from the Food Standards Agency. Um, the ministry vet depending on the size of the abattoir, doesn't actually have to be there constantly. That's a common misconception. Smaller abattoirs, the vet is allowed to inspect the animals alive before they're killed. 
sort of first thing in the morning in the lairage, and then they can be killed for the rest of the day. Um, but that is an exemption for, for relatively small ones. We did some work with a, um, a one of the very few venison abattoirs, dedicated venison abattoirs in the country a few years ago, and that was the case there. They kill about 50, um, 50 stags a day in the season, only in the winter. And they, they have a vet who comes in in the morning, looks through the animals, makes sure they're fit to be killed, and then, and then signs them all off. And then they have a gentleman from the FSA, so what would have been the meat hygiene service, who will, who will carry out the inspections on each animal as they're killed to make sure that the carcasses are fit for human consumption. And this is the same in a, in a large abattoir, you know, it's just that the vets are on site 24 seven. Um, if, if you're talking about your own use, just, just, you know, because I would guess that you guys are eating your own pork as well as perhaps wanting to sell it on for your own use, strictly for your own use, or for those in your immediate household is the legal expression. They can be killed at home. Um, the legislation is is supportive of that. It, that is no issue. You don't need a slaughterman's license to kill your own animal for your own consumption um, at all. It doesn't need to be injured or anything else. You can kill an animal on your own holding for your own consumption. Uh, but obviously, if there is any doubt around that meat having even been sold or have got onto the market, there are there are incredibly hefty penalties to pay for that. Um, so just be aware of that. The legislation for killing on farm otherwise to enter the food chain is quite complex. It is actually possible, and it's very common in cattle, for example. So if a if a when the OTMS ended a few years ago, the over 30-month scheme where um basically we scrapped any cow that was over 30 months old, uh, couldn't go into the food chain because of concerns around BSC. When that ended, uh, effectively the legislation sort of changed or it basically came back into force as it was before, which meant that if an animal if an animal is killed on farm by a licensed slaughterman and by a vet, and a vet is present to check that it was fit to be killed before it's killed, it can then be transported dead, provided it's been bled, to an abattoir. And then it goes through the process in the abattoir and they have to sign it off as fit for consumption. Now, commercially speaking, it wouldn't be financially viable to do that with a pig. Um, but what you do find is, for example, dairy farmers who have cattle that have gone down and are what they call unfit to load, so you wouldn't be allowed to send them to an abattoir because they're lame sometimes they will have a they will have a vet come and sign it off while the slaughterman shoots it and bleeds it and then it will go into the abattoir so there is there is it is legally possible to kill an animal on farm and have it enter the food chain that is possible but the, the legislation is quite complex um basic processing in most of the abattoirs in the uk um this doesn't differ very much for pigs at all Obviously, Lairidge is the area the pigs are brought into and held in live, you know, generally not for more than eight hours, but you do get some that are Lairidged overnight. The animals are then stunned, so gas or electric. The smaller abattoirs would be using electric, electronarcosis, so it's a, a probe that goes over the head and basically massive voltage induces effectively the equivalent of a huge epileptic fit, knocks the animal unconscious. Um, the gas, actually, in this country, when CO2 is used for stunning, it has to be what is called an irreversible stun. So actually, technically speaking, perhaps not clinically speaking, but on, a, on some, on many levels, the animal is basically dead at the point it's tipped out of the butina is the expression that's used. That, that, a bit like Hoover, you know, butina are the people who make the stunners. They're stunned in groups in gas, so they don't get distressed. So they're in a group, they're basically in a pen of about six to 10 pigs. The pen is actually lowered down into a pit full of gas so they can increase the concentration much more quickly. And the animals lose consciousness. They sort of get a bit a bit uh, euphoric. Then they lose consciousness, and then effectively their heart stops, and then they're tipped out. And then the process basically is exactly the same for gas or electric. So they're then shackled, which is a chain effectively around their ankle. 
goes onto the line and stuck, so they're bled. Basically, it's the ascending aorta that's severed. People have this image of them kind of cutting throats and stuff, and there is perhaps a degree of that that goes on, but really it's a vertical cut that's made here, which severs the ascending aorta coming up from the heart. And it actually, the slit is made here, which is why they use the expression stick rather than kind of opening them. Uh, so the animals are bled. There's, I think, a minimum period, I think it's around 90 seconds, where the animals have to be allowed to bleed before any other process is carried out. So you will then have a bleed rail. So they'll rack animals up on the bleed rail while they're bleeding. They're obviously, again, clinically dead at this point. People are checking for signs of absence of signs of life is the expression all the way through. The animals are then scalded. So they'll go through a scald tank, which is why they're on a shackle. So the shackle is the chain. We'll sort of drag them through the scald tank, which is water normally sort of just hotter than your hand can bear, which encourages the, um, the hair to loosen in the pigs. And then there's a thing called a tumbler or a polisher, which is basically like a giant washing machine with rubber fingers in it. Uh, often, like if people have seen the pluckers, sometimes they use similar sort of technology. It has varied over the years, but not that much, which sort of rubs the hair off. They're then tipped out onto a table. And at that point, they're gambrelled. So the, the fixed gambrel, the two spikes that go through the, um, effectively the sort of tendons in the leg, they're stuck each side and hooked in. And then they've transferred from sort of the, the dirty side of the abattoir to the clean side. So from that point on, it's sort of all white coats, food processing, etc. Um, they're then singed often. So they're actually, they're actually tumbled, uh, they're scalded and singed. It's, it's very common now to singe as well. And indeed, in some of the abattoirs that do export to China, they have a chaplain called the Turkish barber who has a razor who shaves the trotters as well, um, which is insane to me that that's financially viable but i suppose if he's shaving you know fourteen thousand trials a day perhaps it is um the next step is the bung is dropped so the backside of the pig is then basically uh there is a it's often done with a either a robot or a, an automated device now that effectively cuts a ring around the backside of the pig that and so that part of the gut then drops inside the pig the pig is then opened and the guts are removed split into green offal and red offal so sort of liver uh, lungs pluck effectively liver lungs heart and they travel along with the pig on a separate rail so that they can be identified so that if the, when they're inspected if the food standards agency sees something concerning in the pluck they should be able to pair that up to the animal and go right we'll take that animal off there's normally a room that's called rectification so as they go through if when when they get to the inspection point it's something that they're not happy with is spotted that can be trimmed so an abscess or something it will come off the line into what's called rectification. So there will be several people in there who are who are specifically trimming tails or whatever it is that's been damaged. And then it will be rechecked by the FSA and go back onto the line. Uh, the animals are then split. So they're generally split from the tail to just behind the head. So they're, they're held together effectively by the head. So the two, the two carcass halves are totally separated apart from at the head. And then they travel down on the same gambrel still, but with a split all the way down. And then they go into the chillers for hanging. Okay. Questions that we normally have on this, Dom, is that um, and it is ear tags and identification, and some saying need metal tags and plastic. And I remember years ago I spoke to um, a chap who was also a slaughterman. He was saying that it used to be that metal tags were predominantly used in the north of England because that was the the burning and the singeing of the hairs. Where in the southern part of England it's predominantly scalding, so therefore it's the plastic tags. But I'm finding it more and more that people are using plastic tags and it's we, fine. So, so the commercial industry doesn't ear tag at all. It's no. very rare to ear tag. They're all slapped. 
We actually do a lot of work on ear tagging on uh, individual EID. So uh, UHF, we we have a package that we use with the, the, uh, the genetics guys and some of the commercial mm-hmm. guys. So for actually tracking individual finishers, because most finisher pigs obviously attract a batch level on commercial units. They're not individually ID'd. Um, you do find that certainly at Brecon, so in Scotland, they run the singe a lot hotter. And I've seen plastic ear tags catch fire in the pig's ear and have sort of three foot of flame coming off them. All abattoirs consider ear tags in pigs, any ear tag to be a pain in the arse because they have to remove them. Basically, they don't like them at all. And there has been quite a lot of resistance from abattoirs over over commercial units sending pigs in with tags in their ears. The the guys who do all the so basically all of the coal sales in the UK are killed in one particular plant. And those guys specialise in exporting that meat to Germany. Uh, They're obviously very used to it because more or less every sale, well, the vast majority of sales are ear tagged. And if they're not ear tagged, they shouldn't be being moved anyway. Um, because slap marking a sow is not entertaining because they tend to slap back. Um, but yeah, apart from that, the abattoirs generally dislike ear tags quite a lot because the challenges with pigs and, you know, the analogy with sheep is obviously a sheep, the carcass doesn't have a head on it. Whereas with a pig, the, the ear tag in theory is still in its ear in the chiller. There have been some concerns raised around plastic tags going through singe and contaminating the carcass with plastic uh, as it burns. There is some work that was done sort of off the record on that that shows it's it's a complete nonsense, basically, that that's not the case. Um, some of them get upset with them because if the tumbler, depending on the ear tag, so ours are a special design for retention, some of them will be torn out in the tumbler. And then what they do is they block the sort of little jets at the bottom that keep the water warm, and then they get very upset about that. Uh, I would say... You know, whatever suits you best on farm is what I would use, to be honest, because they're not going to thank you for sending any ear tags in. So I just stick with what suits you best. Yeah, You're, you you don't you know, the, the big challenge in commercial abattoirs is very uh, it's sort of an accepted industry thing that very rarely do you get paid for the pigs you actually sent in. Uh, you might get most of them might be yours if you're lucky, but some of them are normally somebody else's. You know, we'll have somebody send 220 boars in and there'll be 30 gilts on their kill sheet. Um Whereas you guys, because you're sending in, I would guess, smaller numbers and very specific types of animals, you at least know you're getting your pigs back. <laughs> I've noticed that some people up in um, Scotland have said that they, um, in Wishaw, they've said that they get their pigs back with the ear tags intact. Now, that shouldn't happen. That shouldn't happen in theory. The FSA uh, have an absolutely tedious habit of cutting ear tags out of pigs but of course they won't do that if they're metal ones because they can't cut them out plastic what you will tend to find on the line and we have had this issue when we've been doing traceability studies using plastic ear tags however many times you instruct the fsa normally to be fair because very few fsa inspectors is english their first language um but however many times you you instruct them unless you stand next to them on the line they will they will cut the tags out um as part of their duty there is a bit of a there's a bit of an argument around they shouldn't go into a chiller with tags in them because it's kind of foreign body um and that's the concern is i think is basically in theory somebody could choke to death on the ear tag if it ended up in the food chain the reality is obviously most certainly all commercial abattoirs but most even small abattoirs now have metal detection equipment so if it's a metal tag or a plastic tag on a metal component it would be found in the packaging anyway and obviously if you're having a whole pig back it's significantly less of an issue, but I would, I would, I would go with basically whatever suits you best on farm, you know. And if you don't have to tag, 
slapping is okay but you know on a on a rare breed on a sort of a higher value piece of meat i would always avoid slapping and to be honest we we're trying to sort of discourage people we're trying to encourage people to move away from slapping anyway um because it's it's a bit archaic and it doesn't look very good to the public and so would you say i've got a question here say should the ear tags be removed at the abattoir that so depending on which fsa inspector you speak to yes Basically, they they have told me on numerous occasions that they have to cut them out before it goes into the chiller. But you will have noticed if you send them in with metal tags because they don't have a tool that allows them to cut them out, they just let them go. The worst thing that does happen, and I have seen that happen, is if you get a particularly enthusiastic inspector, they will just cut the ear off, uh, which is not helpful. <laughs> um, but that does happen as well. They'll just take the entire ear off and, and scrap it. Um but you, I mean, if you go into any abattoir, if you look at the FSA inspectors stand, there will be underneath where they stand just a just pile of ear tags. Um, that's what they do. Um, two things you spoke about um, bleeding and um, there's another issue which we've experienced on our, on our pork group doms where someone has taken their pigs in and they brought the carcass back and it's been skinned. Why yes. would an abattoir have skinned um, a pig? Um, basically, I, I would guess if they're outdoors because they can't get the hair out would be the only reason I can think logically why you do that. Because if there was an abscess, you would be required to trim the meat as well, because it, you know, there will be nothing that's only skin deep. Mm -hmm. you know, um, so either somebody has mistaken the markings for bruising, which is possible, and they've tried to be helpful and cut the bruising off. It uh, seems like an odd thing to do to me, but I can imagine that sort of thing does happen. But nine times out of ten, the only reason to skin a pig is is if it's overly hairy, or if they've needed to um, if they've needed to remove part of the skin because it's become damaged or entangled in a piece of equipment or something like that. But in a smaller avatar, that would be unlikely. Uh, there is also the unfortunate possibility that what they're trying to do is obfuscate which pig is coming back, um, because your pigs will be particularly identifiable by their skin. It's possible that. They've accidentally sent, you know, that they're they're sort of shuffling pigs around internally in an abattoir and they're therefore have skinned it to conceal that fact. However, skinning a pig takes a long time. So I'd be very surprised if they're doing it sort of intentionally. I would, I would, yeah, I would ask for feedback. There is no legitimate, there's no real reason you would do it, to my mind. Apart from we we will we have before when I've killed pigs on farm for people, we have uh, skinned pigs for that reason because you know, singeing them on farm is not always 100% foolproof. And some people don't like sort of hairy crackling. But mm. apart from that, there's there's no real reason, you know. Okay. And um, bleeding. Um, some of us also use or would like to use the blood to make um, black pudding. Black pudding. How difficult how common is it uh, so the, the legislation on that is is deeply complex there is there is you will be aware uh, i think two companies doing that in the uk on a very small scale basically the legislation on capturing blood and using it for human consumption is very restrictive which is why all of the commercial black pudding producers use freeze-dried hemoglobin from denmark basically so actually when those animals are bled, the abattoir is set up effectively. The, the bleed, the stick, is like a hollow knife, which has a vacuum capture system attached to it. It's basically EU legislation on catching blood means it kind of has to be contained. There, is, there are some exemptions, and I'll, I'll try and look into it and just pop you an email that you can circulate around. Basically, I think if, you, if you're there and can catch it in a bucket, 
and then get it back very, very quickly and use it. There is a time frame that you are allowed to do that within. The challenge will be you will need to you will need to get the avatar to agree to that. And I, I'm not 100% sure how many of them would. Um, that's that's the complexity is the sort of speed with it, which it has to be done. But you can do it. It's not illegal. There are there are two businesses in the UK doing that at the minute. Um, and it does make a huge difference. I will say that I have had fresh blood black pudding and it is significantly different to the, um, the sort of standard freeze-dried hemoglobin stuff that's then rehydrated when it comes over from Denmark, you know. Because effectively, most of the stuff that's used in commercial black pudding in the UK isn't even dried whole blood. It's actually spun out in a centrifuge, and it's basically just dried red blood cells. Well, sort of component of red blood cells. So it's it's uh, lacks the meaty taste, whereas the fresh blood stuff actually does taste like a piece of meat, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. No worries. Uh, well, unless there's anything else on abattoirs or, or that type of thing, we will go meat quality or, or farm killing or anything like that, but we can ask it as we go along. Basically, uh, commercially, I don't know how many people would be aware, there are no incentives to meat quality uh, in commercial pig production. People are paid on a matrix, so there's a table that effectively says, is it a male or a female? Uh, what is what is the P2 measurement? And is it a minimum or a maximum weight? So the P2 measurement, I would guess you'll all be aware, but just for information, is a fat measurement. Uh, I think it's two inches from the centre line of the spine over the head of the last rib. So the fat there is measured. Uh, normally wildly and accurately, to be honest, uh, but is measured on the line. And that is, you know, most contracts will range from kind of eight to maybe 12 or 14 mil, 14, 16 mil, maybe depending on the abattoir. Uh, and then I think over that will be massively penalised. My guess would be having had Oxford and Sandy Blackport before, I would guess most of yours are running somewhere around 25, 30, maybe more, um, which is one of the reasons why, you know, um, traditional breeds are, have been, as I'm sure you're all aware, sort of skewed is because of this drive towards leaner meat. So basically we're paid on lean meat, uh, but not in the actual measurement. And the, the problem with P2 measurement is the tool that's used to do it is a um, it's called an introscope in most avatars. It's effectively a, a um, an optical device that you sort of look into. It looks a bit like a pistol, has a point on it, which is pushed in as the probe. And then the inspector will look down it and then sort of adjust it until they see the layer of fat and then they'll read off from the side. Um, we did some work with a company probably about five years ago who invented a thing called the Autofom, which is basically an ultrasound scanner for pigs. So all pigs in Germany are graded via this process. And uh, to give some context, it takes so many measurements of each individual pig carcass, it generates two gigabytes of data for every single pig. Um, so it basically takes an ultrasound all the way through the pig. The pig is rolled on its back once it's dead and dragged through a trough. And the trough has, I think, 16 or 32 probes, ultrasound probes around it. And it takes slices through the pig, looks at the ratio of ham to loin to shoulder, and then looks at fat coverage. And then using all of that information does a calculation about the belly. Um, I actually visited a couple of UK abattoirs, but the chap who invented that, and when they saw the introscope, which is the UK tool being used on the line, he swore vociferously and suggested it was like something from the Stone Age. Um, and actually, if you go into the Meat Science Institute in France, the introscope is in their box of, um, they have a sort of cabinet in their foyer, which has literally stone axes from, you know, 10,000 BC or whatever next to an introscope. Um, so they are, as far as they are concerned, it is, it is outdated. Um, again, wouldn't affect most of you guys, but that is that is part of the problem with commercial pork in this country. And the reason it's, you know, the, the flavour and the taste and the quality is not great is because nobody's paid for it. 
there have been a couple of cases where particular retailers or particular abattoirs or you know particular link-ups for specific genotypes have been paid so one of the big uk genetics companies jsr produced an animal called the tender gen which was a hampshire cross uh, slightly slower growing slightly more tender meat and they did actually have an excellent meat scientist working for them at jsr at the time um and that was paid a premium, but in reality, because they grew more slowly and converted, not as well, the premium wasn't really worthwhile. And I think that's now died to death because most producers sort of walked away from it in the end. John, can I just, sorry to interrupt, yeah. just a quick quick one going back to um, killing the animals on farm. What yeah. do you do um, when you're dealing with your consumption? What do you do with the guts and the, and, and the waste? So if they're killed for human consumption, if they're killed for the food chain, they have to go as a whole carcass. So they have to go with guts in situ. They just have to be bled on farm. If you are killing them yourself, uh, those components can be collected into a basically a leak-proof container. So the blood, the guts, all the waste, sealed, and then we'll, most Nakamon will then collect that and charge you a fee to dispose of them, basically. Okay. That that is the, the easiest way of doing it. I mean, you know, I'm sure there are lots of people who throw it in, dig holes and throw it in a hole or put it in a muck heap or whatever else, but that obviously is... It is animal byproduct. Um, the animal byproduct le- regulations we won't get into in too much detail, but basically there are certain exemptions for farmers, and and you would all come under that. You know, if you have a holding where you're keeping pigs, you are agriculturalists. Um, to store animal byproducts, you would normally require a license, a specific animal byproducts license from AFA, or at least registration, if not licensing. Um, as farmers, you don't. You have an exemption. So provided you capture all of that material, don't allow it to contaminate the ground or water or anything else, and you can then store it until it is collected by what they would call a licensed waste carrier. Now, of course, all all Nakamon will be licensed to collect that and take it away anyway, um, and they'll just incinerate it. Most of them, or they'll send it away to somebody else. So it is... It is the thing I would say, the, the most complex thing, um, I don't know how graphic you want me to be, the most complicated thing about killing pigs on farm, I would say, for anybody who's not done it before, is obviously the, the most common way to do it, the way we would do it, is with a free bullet. So we would shoot the animal and then bleed it. Um, shooting pigs, if you've not done it before, requires a lot of experience. Um, it is They are notoriously, even amongst slaughtermen, they are notoriously difficult to shoot. Um, and you, it can, it can go quite badly wrong. You can sort of shoot one and then it get back up. Um, so I would say, unless somebody has a lot of experience, I would ask somebody to come out. There will be people. I mean, we do it sometimes. We will go out and show people. You know, train people how to do it, do one with them or something like that. Uh, they can be done perfectly capably with a twenty ball shotgun or something like that. You don't need. You know, I have I have specific equipment for slaughter because we do large numbers and we need. Sometimes it has to be sort of um, done quietly and that type of thing in um, in sort of sensitive situations. But there is nothing to stop people with a actually a four ten with decent shot in it um, is more than capable of shooting a pig. The most common thing used for doing large numbers is a twenty two LR, which is a small caliber rifle, which is the most common rifle in the UK. Um, there are there are ballistics concerns about ricochets and things like that you have to take into account but it, it is not um i wouldn't encourage every, encourage everybody to go out gung-ho and do it mm-hmm. but if you're going to do one or two for your own consumption every year i personally would would normally if i had my own and obviously i do, i can't keep my own pigs at the minute my partner used to keep archers um but we can't keep pigs because we work in the industry and for biosecurity it's a complete uh, complete no-no so I, before i go onto any farm i have to be 48 hours pig free and most of my nucleus customers, I'm 72 hours pig free and I'm not even allowed to wear my own underpants. 
So I shower in, they will give me my clothing right down to my underwear. Uh, no phone, no laptop, no knives. I had a special dispensation from Canada the other day to take my laptop onto farm in Scotland, um, even though what we were there to do was work with a laptop. Um, but I would say get, get some instruction if you're interested in doing it. But sorry, where I was going with that is if I had my own, I would, I would always kill my own for our own consumption. I wouldn't send them to an abattoir. It's not because I have an issue with the avatars or anything else. It's partly cost. It's partly transport. I'm, you know, if, you're, if you've only got sort of several animals, it's quite difficult to justify having a livestock trailer. Um, you know, I want to know that I've got that animal back. And as you say, you know, sometimes they do weird things like skin them or, you know, you'll lose a trotter or you'll lose an ear or you'll lose something you particularly want. And, and again, you know, if they're your own animals, for your own consumption, you want to use as much of them as possible. And of course, then if you want to capture the blood and make blood pudding, you're well away because you can just do it yourself. You could even bleed them into a saucepan, possibly. But um, yeah, so I, I would I would encourage if people are serious about it and they already have either a shotgun or a, or a firearm um, and have have sort of a reasonably strong stomach, I would say you know take some instruction from somebody experienced um, and and have a crack at it. Not have a crack at it that undermines it. Take some instruction from somebody experienced so you know what you're doing. But, you know, it, it's still supported in law. There's still a very clear case. There's still a very clear exemption for the slaughter of animals on farm for a farmer's own consumption without a slaughterman's licence. Um, and it can, can, can be done cleanly and effectively on farm, you know. I've got one question that's come through on that, Don. It says that the chap here says, I've done home kills and used a 0.410. Can yeah. you clarify the correct place is to draw a cross between the eye and the opposite ear? Yes. That, yeah. that's that's the basic and the humane if you look on the humane slaughter association's website they have free documentation to tell you where to shoot it the key thing with a pig and if you've done it yourself before you may well have found this is actually the angle of entry so the challenge with a pig's brain is a pig's brain is relatively high and far back if you you know when you shoot cattle uh, you, it basically stands in front of you with its head very flat and you shoot it square in the head uh, and and the, the bullet will then attempt to travel down the spine. The the always the challenge with a free bullet, partly as safety and partly in terms of maximum disruption of the brainstem, is to effectively try and aim to penetrate the skull at such an angle that the bullet will then travel down the spine. Now, obviously, it doesn't sort of come out the back end of the pig or anything, but that gives you an appropriate angle because of the angle of the pig's forehead and the way its back is connected to its head. That can be quite challenging. But that is the that is the point you're aiming to penetrate. It's just that the angle. For a standard size finisher, you need to be aware that you're not sort of just pointing straight down at it, because then if sometimes you can get over penetration, it will come out the bottom of the animal's head, sort of through its throat. And then you either run the risk of an ineffective kill, um, or you run the risk of if it's a not with a 410, but with something like a 22 and a ricochet coming up off concrete or stone or even soil. Um, so I would, it, it, you know, but a 410 is more than okay. I mean, you, you can shoot a sow with a 410 with the right type of shot if you know where you're putting the. Um, where you put in the placement. And shotguns are fairly effective. If you speak to Charlie Mason of the Humane Slaughter Association, he, he is a great advocate of the 20 ball for everything because as the shot tends to penetrate as a single mass and stun the animal and then actually um, disseminates inside the skull and does lots of damage to the brain and that's what we're looking for is to kill it. And to, to clarify, when you bleed an animal that you've shot with a free bullet in the head, the animal is technically, is legally dead so you, again, don't need a licence to bleed or anything else. You, you can shoot the animal and then bleed it. Uh, the only thing I would say is be aware that some constabularies uh, can be um, 
with a firearm, so with a, either a rifle or a Section 1 shotgun, will insist that you have on, your, uh, on that firearm. Hello? Hello? Amanda Coates, you are not on mute. Have you got a question? Uh, no, sorry, Ashall. <laughs> yeah, so just, just be aware that with a Section 1 firearm, so either a rifle or a Section 1 shotgun, um, some police forces and, and the law in the letter says you have to have what is called a condition on your licence to allow you to kill animals with that firearm. Uh, shotgun, because shotgun section two weapons, i.e. two shot, three shot shotguns, which is what the vast majority of people have as their shotguns, because the shotgun licence has no conditions attached to it, generally speaking, there is no requirement to do that. But for a firearm, so either a section one shotgun or a section one firearm, it must have a condition for killing animals. Just be aware of that if you are gonna if you are gonna sort of go down that road. But again, I would if if you've never done any before, but you have a you have a I wouldn't specifically go out and get a license to shoot one pig a year, for example. But if you are already either a shotgun or a firearms license holder uh, and you have an interest in it, I would take some instruction. Um and and you know lower food miles, lower stress for the animal, lower stress for the owner prospectively. Um, you know, the only thing again with any of these things, the same as if you have to and euthanize an animal the key thing is to make sure you're going to follow through you know we don't want to get part way through and then uh, and then back down right meat quality um this is going to be very contentious i'm sure in this group outdoor produced that is the wrong type of bread but i mean bread as in breeding outdoor produced pigs um there's been a lot of work done on this have lower meat quality scores than indoor produced pigs and the reason for this is, is generally thought to be um that it is a more stressful and i will qualify that by saying biologically stressful environment obviously pigs indoors are held at a fairly consistent temperature uh, they're constantly fed they're constantly kind of looked at the air is turned over etc etc they don't have to experience rain wind dark light all of that type of thing so they need a relatively easy life so some meat quality in, uh, indications such as bite force or as a sort of a mechanical mouth they bite with and they look at how much pressure is required to bite into the meat after it's been cooked at a certain ratio, et cetera, et cetera. And shear force, which is a, a similar type of machine. Um, they are both, they are always uh, sort of more tender in indoor animals. Now that is in commercial animals. So just as a context for that, that's in. So if we take a conventional kind of tri-star, you know, Durot, large white lamb race, cross type thing, Hampshire, Peterham, whatever, that is generally the case. Um, and of course, you know, the... Uh, outdoor units tend to be larger um, and the piglets, you know, the piglets do tend to eat just about anything, you know, crows, rats, mice, whatever they can get hold of. Um, that tends to lead to a much healthier, in terms of its gut health animal at weaning, but it can impact that meat quality as it is. It's biologically more stressful. Obviously, the vast majority of outdoor pigs in the UK, just I'm sure you're all aware, are bred outside, come indoors at day 28 on straw, and stay indoors for the rest of their life. But even then, there is a there is a, a statistically significant impact of that on meat quality, which is not a positive thing. And it's I'm not saying, you know, let's bring them all indoors on slats, but what we have to do is we have to be aware of that and then act accordingly in order to sort of negate that. Um, the work has never been done in rare breeds, not on the same scale, so it would be quite interesting to see that, but I don't know anybody who keeps Oxford and Zandy Blacks on slats. Um, so there are a range of commercial breeds that are being pushed for meat eating quality. So uh, Genesis, who are a Canadian genetics company, we do quite a lot of work with their UK sites, um, which are independent farmers who produce pigs for Genesis. 
And actually, as um, we were discussing earlier, one of the reasons we're going to Canada uh, in July, um, they have done a huge amount of work on meat eating quality. They actually have several abattoirs in the US, which will only kill Genesis pigs. They will not kill anybody else's because they export meat to China, uh, to Japan, sorry, rather. And some of this meat that's going to Japan, so effectively the Duroc is like, um, is the Kobe of the pig world. You know, it's it has that intramuscular fat. There are some of these um, Genesis Duroc steaks, pork loin steaks that are going to Japan and are retailing for sort of $300 for a pack of two. Um, I mean, that's right at the extreme end of the market and it's sort of wrapped up very nicely. It has a bow on it and all of this type of thing. But So there is an interest there internationally, but in the UK, if you have Genesis Durox as a, as a nucleus unit, because normally you would cross the Durox over a commercial, more commercial animal, uh, effectively you have to fight to get them killed in a commercial abattoir because they are fatter and they have the intramuscular fat. We had one at Christmas uh, where our customer killed a few um, through a local abattoir here, and it is spectacular pork. You know, I must say it is not as good as the Oxford and Sandy Black I had, but from a from a commercial unit in the UK, it would be the best pork I've, I've ever had. And it is significantly fatter, and that will be one of the reasons why. Um, huge range of metrics um, in meat quality uh, from colour. So um, you can measure colour. Colorimetrics is a, is a science of measuring colour, and there's a thing called the LAB, which is um, there are three different numbers that are produced when you take a colour measurement of something. And the L measurement from LAB is often used in meat quality and it's lightness. So in uh, basically, without getting into too much detail, the LAB measurement for colours describes a ball which has lightness and darkness on one axis and then various other colours on the other axis. So effectively, the, the LAB measurement describes a location in this three-dimensional ball, which gives you the exact colour. The L measurement is often used for meat to describe lightness or darkness. Uh, and it is something that... Um, that Genesis have done a lot of work on for their Duroc, because obviously the lightness of a, of a pig, of a Duroc uh, piece of meat, is often describing the intramuscular fat. So for them, that's particularly relevant. You know, the bite testing is done with a me mechanical mouth to make it as fair as possible. It's fairly common. Shear force is a, is a similar sort of measurement, you know, at which point, how much pressure do you have to exert to cut the meat? Uh, and then, you know, you get into human tasting panels and that type of thing. Um, the most common issues sort of kicking around in the industry both both commercially and i would say you know relevant to your animals as well uh, drip loss can be a problem so it's more to do with weight but it can actually impact the animal and can cause them um, can cause problems with meat quality further down the line there is an issue uh, pse meat i'm not sure if anybody's come across that's pale soft and exudative meat so it's but when you look at it in the tray it's it's very pale and it's basically leaking um there are some there are some genetic components to that, which I'm not sure would be would be pre, uh, present in the Oxford and Sandy Black, but it, it has been an issue sort of commercially. And it, if you do see it, it would be worth looking into it. One of the ways that has been addressed in the mainstream industry is to use modified atmosphere packaging. So I guess you'd all be aware that the meat trays in the supermarket are flooded with gas. So they're not. It's not just in a tray. You know, the, the reason they're sealed is because they have modified atmosphere and they have a gas filling inside that container to help maintain the meat, but also to maintain the appearance of the meat and to stop it from leaking, um, which I would guess none of you guys are, are using modified atmosphere packaging. So it's just something to be aware of. If you start to see this sort of very pale meat color and it is, it is dripping a lot or it's losing a lot of liquid in the trays, there are ways that can be combated. 
And the opposite of that is DFD meat, which is dark, firm and dry meat. Uh, that is more commonly, there are some biological causes of that in the pig, but it's actually more commonly on a small scale caused by inappropriate handling of the meat and of the carcasses themselves, um, which can, can be one of the reasons why they do, uh, sorry, one of the things that causes it is blast chilling. So most of the large abattoirs are blast chilling. So the animal is actually put through what is effectively a, a very high power, very cold wind, I think minus 70 for a certain period of time to drop the temperature of the carcass very, very quickly. Part of the challenge of this is it also, and, and PSE meat also is linked to this, is to do with carcass um, final pH and the way the pH drops. And that can have a serious impact on drip loss and on PSE meat. So I, it's worth speaking to. If you're using a larger regional abattoir, it's worth it's worth finding out if they're blast chilling because I would say for your purposes, it's not necessary and it, it certainly doesn't add to meat quality in a lot of cases unless they're having problems getting them to temperature in a, in a main chiller. And then obviously the, the flips are the opposite of that's true. Duration hanging of meat is an obvious one. You know, the longer the animal is hung, generally speaking, the more effective chance it's had to break down is realistically what we're talking about. You know, 35 day age beef is, you know, it's just microbial activity. In reality, it's just very carefully controlled microbial activity. Um, the vast majority of pork for, for mainstream consumption is killed on Monday and is packaged on Tuesday. So it's blast chilled. It will be hung overnight. It will be if it's if it's first killed in the morning, it might be hung for that day and then overnight, and then that's it. It goes straight in the packet. So it will be on a retail shelf within three days. So, Don, what what are your thoughts on hanging a pig carcass for a certain hang, number of days? I would hang a pig carcass for a minimum of seven days. And what I would be inclined to do is, if you if you have the opportunity to do it yourself, is to push that as far as you can uh, within reason. And and basically, if you hang one for seven days and you find it's okay, I'd hang the next one for eight, and so on. And you you will know yourself, you know, if it starts to turn is the wrong thing, uh, wrong expression. If it starts to sort of push it, you know. But I would hang pig carcasses, and you will find that sort of you know a. a I, I loathe the word artisan, but an artisan butcher would probably nine times out of ten hang them for seven days. Um, but it's, uh, you know, the challenge for the abattoirs is throughput and space and, and obviously cost. They're not interested in doing that. You know, the reality is the palmer and that type of thing is hung for six months and it's not really chilled. You know, it's kind of hung in an ambient condition. I mean, it is a very carefully controlled environment, but it is hung for six months. So, you know, there is there is a lot of flexibility within there, but I would certainly... I would certainly be pushing it as far as you can if what you're after is, is sort of absolute meat quality. Uh, cold shortening is, is more of an interesting phenomenon than it is anything else, but it can cause sort of uh, tight spots in the meat. So as the carcass is chilled, and again, this, this can be caused by blast chilling, it actually contracts. If it does that too quickly, some of that meat can, um, some of the meat basically becomes very tough where the muscles have effectively uh, tensed because it, you will, uh, horrifyingly, if you went into an abattoir, it's particularly obvious in deer, actually, more than anything else, but you do see it in pigs. There will be carcasses hung in a chiller, just about to be hung in a chiller, which are still twitching. Now, they've got no head, heart, lungs, guts, anything else, but the, the ATP, the, the energy, effectively, in the meat is still firing. So you will see small muscle twitches, and, and we've done it with game that we've shot, you know, that effectively is, has got no, no head anymore, no stomach. You know, it's been gutted and is sitting on a on a tray where it's still warm and it's cooling, uh, it is it is moving and there is a lot of movement in it. 
Now that can be, you know, if it's very cold as that fires, it can cause sort of a very tight contraction and it can cause kind of tight spots in the meat. It's a bit more complex than that, but that's the, the long and the short of it. Um, bore tank is uh, a myth or a serious problem, depending on which side of the fence you fall down on. Um, I don't know how many people will be familiar with bore tank, but effectively when you are cooking, it's normally far more obvious when you're cooking the animal, uh, cooking the meat is is an unpleasant smell. The the odour of boar tank very rarely travels over into a taste panel. It's normally when you're cooking it. Curing the meat makes it worse, so it's very obvious in bacon. These sound like generalisms, but these are based on very, very clear research. Women are far more sensitive towards it, and actually uh, Asian populations are far more sensitive towards it as well. That's been proven quite a few times. The two chemicals involved, the two sort of um, biological chemicals, are skatol and androstenone. Skatol is the smell that people associate charmingly with um, feces and androstenone is associated with urine very strongly. Although actually when, when panels have been asked, androstenone is, is a very strong urine smell and skatol is more associated with uh, the word that was actually used to describe it was manure as opposed to waste. But it is, it is the, the, the aversive smell that when you smell waste, be it animal or whatever else, uh, sort of stops you in your tracks, which obviously is a biological response to stop you poisoning yourself. Um, they, they the levels vary quite a lot in meat. When the Danes banned castration, uh, their agriculture minister released in an actual public statement and said, "Don't worry, we'll just send all the boar tainted meat to England because they're used to it." Um, we have so because of Red Tractor, I guess a lot of you guys don't need to be, and I would I would encourage you not to unless you really have to. Uh, because Red Tractor have said no castration. If it is a de facto ban because because to supply any mainstream abattoir as a commercial producer, you have to be red tractor as bare minimum. Basically, when red tractor click their fingers, it, it's tantamount to a change in the law. So whilst the law here allows castration, red tractor have never allowed it. Now, actually, they did change their rules uh, end of last year, I think. And what they have now specified is surgical castration because there is a um, there is an injection, a, a kind of a, a jab that can be given to pigs which causes regression of the testes. So it's not chemical castration. They get very upset when I call it that. It's effectively an immunization against testosterone. So it, it removes riding behaviors. It removes the risk of bore tape and various other things without having to actually take a scalpel to the animal. They discourage, well, they encourage people to be exceptionally careful when using it because if a gentleman jabs himself with it twice, he will not be having any more children and will be off to sing soprano. Um, and it is, it is a fairly potent thing, but it has been, you know, it's been used all the way across Australia, various other countries for a very long time. No effects on human beings, no carryover, because what it effectively does is immunises the animal against its own hormones rather than a chemical that suppresses um, testosterone. So that now is, is to a degree cleared for use in the UK because the red tractor just changed the wording because it always said castration before as opposed to specifying surgical castration. Uh, there are, I am aware, there are ongoing conversations with retailers about, is that okay? Um, none of them want to be the first one to say, yes, it is, because, of course, as soon as the Daily Mail get hold of something that says we're, you know, we're feeding people pork that could be uh, causing them to turn into women, everybody's going to get terribly upset, you know, et cetera. Do you know what I mean? Like the, like the whole sort of estrogen and water supply nonsense all over again. Um, so there are, some, there are some other methods. So there are... As suggested with this sort of this um, this injection, there is there are things we can do on farm to reduce these problems. Um, so castration is obviously very effective against bore taint. 
making sure that pens are kept clean. There is some evidence to suggest that if pigs are lying in, in dirty conditions, it can actually, because they're, they're, those hormones are really kind of in the fat. And as the fat is cooked off and it volatilizes, those hormones are released and you can smell them. They're not hormones, sort of biological chemicals. Um, so there is some evidence to suggest that sort of if pigs lie in muck for a long time or urine for a long time, it can be absorbed to a degree. That, that science is patchy, but there is, there is some good evidence there. Keeping pens cleaner, castrating animals obviously will reduce that. Um, you know, discussing with the abattoir how they're killing, how they're stunning, and how they're chilling carcasses. That's a key thing. Um, we would conventionally in New Zealand, when we used to kill cattle, home kill cattle, I would discourage anybody from doing that who is not a licensed slaughterman because that's quite a big job. Um, and you asked about taking the guts out of a pig and putting them somewhere. Funnily enough, when you open up a cow, that is a lot of stuff to put in a box. Um, what you um, what we used to do is, is post-mortem electrical stimulation. So there are some abattoirs that do that with beef in the UK, and effectively it's clip an electric fencing unit on its tongue and on its backside and fire the fencing unit through them for about six minutes. And what that does is this, this ATP, this energy that's in the muscles still firing, it basically fires all of that off and allows the carcass to kind of just relax, for want of a better word. And then it goes through the process. So you don't run this risk of everything tightening as it gets colder. In the same way as you would never take a joint out of the fridge. I mean, that's a different process, but it's a, a similar concept. You wouldn't take a joint out of the fridge and just throw it straight in the pan, you know. Um, there are some feed additives that help with these type of things. So increasing, I mean, most feed rep solution to everything is to increase vitamin E. There is a point at which that has a diminishing return. Vitamin E is a, is a great one. I hear about it in the horse industry all the time. Let's throw some vitamin E at something. There is a point at which it actually causes, uh, vitamin E is obviously an antioxidant. And it does help the animals with oxidative stress. And there is some evidence to show that that same oxidative stress, so basically, you know, oxidative stress is effectively the animal rotting while it's still alive, you know, is it on a on a microscopic level, you know, is, is the turnover of, um, of cells and them basically consuming too much oxygen, you know, um, or not having enough oxygen to consume. Vitamin E does help with that. There, there is a problem that when you provide too much vitamin E, it actually causes oxidative stress. So you sort of go past the point and, and then provide too much. But there are some feed additives you can put in feed or you can add to feed to, to in theory, improve meat quality or certainly reduce the impacts of sort of negative handling in an abattoir and that type of thing. There are some things available case-by-case um, case basis, really, for that. Um, and I would think, you know, where meat quality is marginal in a commercial animal, you maybe see a benefit. Where you're talking about a significantly different breed of animal, I'm not sure that you'd see a great deal of benefit in it. So, FSA, licensing and permitting. All food businesses have to be registered with the local authority. That's legal requirement. Must be registered within 20, uh, 28 days, right? That registration is free, and they are not allowed to decline it unless you've been previously banned, which I would like to think nobody has been. Can all be done online. Generally, your local authority will be fairly helpful. There's a, there's a very odd sort of situation in which uh, the Food Standards Agency and AFA, the Animal Plant Health Agency, are the national enforcement, effectively law enforcement bodies for animals, abattoirs and food. Some of that local enforcement, so in terms of the person who turns up and checks that you're complying and everything else, is then deferred to the local authority who have a sort of animal welfare team and a feed a food team. So the people who, you know, your food standards agency sticker in your shop that says five stars or three stars or eight or one star in your kebab shop, 
is generally issued by the local authority. So effectively, it's it's because the food standardisation is done enough staff. Um, they come up with the policy and they interpret the legislation into policy, and then it's enforced locally. But you you can still be inspected directly by the national sort of enforcement body. Some premises do have to be approved, which, believe it or not, is different from being registered. <laughs> Approval requires a visit. Uh, a lot of registration is not done on a visit. Visits are kind of conducted on a risk assessment basis. So if you tell them that you're, you know, you're killing, you, you want to open an abattoir and kill 300 pigs. I mean, abattoirs have to be licensed anyway. That's a bad example. If you say you're butchering 300 pigs and posting them all over the country, it, they're, they're going to want to approve you and they're also going to come and visit you. If you are killing, if you are selling animals only within a certain radius, selling meat only within a certain area from your location, so not selling it online, but selling it from a shop, for example, or from a from a butchery, and you are and you are doing a, a smaller amount of it, you do not need to be approved. You just have to be registered. It is always worth checking, again, case by case, of whether you need to be approved. In reality, the approval process is not that different. It just means they will definitely come out and see you, and they will want you to go through certain things like disinfection regimen. They will want to inspect the building and everything else, and we'll go through that in a minute. The other piece of paperwork you may require is if you are, and this is 99% certain, obviously, if you have any form of butchery, you need to be washing it down properly. Disposal of that water is legally is in trade effluent. So once it's come into contact with the animal material, it becomes a trade effluent. Now, you can store that on site. You can store up to 1,000 litres of it. You just have to register with the Environment Agency, and then you can pay somebody to come and cart that away. Uh, you don't need a license. Uh, let me get this right. You have to register with the Environment Agency to say you have a thousand up to a thousand liters of it on site, but you don't have to have a you don't have to have an environmental permit. More than a thousand liters of any fluid, you have to have a permit. It wouldn't be worth doing that for anybody here, or indeed for any butchery. If you are connected to the main sewer and you wish to drop it into the sewer, you are allowed to do that, but you have to have a permit to discharge trade effluent and an agreement with your local sewer company. Now, for larger installations, they will want to install a meter to measure what you are discharging into the network and charge you accordingly. For, for, I would guess for everybody here, effectively, it's kind of a handshake agreement and they say, right, we estimate this much, we'll charge you this much for it. But you are not allowed to wash it down into a sewer drain or into a foul water drain or anything else. Technically speaking, you are you're committing an offence at that point. And they can, they do pick people up for that quite frequently because they, they measure... Um, they're obviously keeping track of what's going into the sewers all the time. Uh, and if if all of a sudden somebody opens a butchery and that volume increases, they will be aware of that. And they and they are actually more vociferous than um, than the food standards agency on occasion. They are pretty helpful. Speak to your water company. They will put you in touch with the person who effectively, the people who send you the water bill aren't always the people you need to speak to about the infrastructure. Uh, basically, they will eventually connect you with an individual for your area with a mobile phone number. All of the ones I've dealt with before have been very helpful because they are effectively commercial. They're basically salespeople for the sewer network because you're a commercial customer and they want to charge you money. And it's not expensive. You know, it will be in the order of maybe a few hundred pounds a year, if that. But if you get caught doing it without without a permit to discharge effluent, there is serious trouble to be had. Don't assume you can spread it to land because you can't. <laughs> Don't assume you can just sort of drop it in the sewer and not get caught. So you either have to store it, and like I say, that requires a registration with the Environment Agency, um, up to a thousand litres, and then you'll have to pay somebody to cart it away. 
and dispose of it appropriately. So they'll have to be a licensed waste disposal contractor, or you can drop it in the, in the and, and the easiest thing to do on a small scale is drop it in the sewer network if you are on main drainage. Of course, the problem is most <laughs> most farms are not on main drainage. <laughs> Is um, there a time frame for the up to one thousand liters? No, uh, I think they. I think the sort of um, theoretical time frame is it must be disposed of within twelve months from when the first bit. Of, you have to dispose of it within twelve months. So in theory, <laughs> in theory, if you put a hundred liters in in day one, you've got twelve months to dispose of that hundred liters. But if you put another hundred liters in on day one hundred and fifty, you've still got twelve months to dispose of that hundred liters. If that makes sense. I think provided you were showing that you were having it disposed of routinely, so maybe every six months or something, they would be okay about that. I'll be honest, because of the way waste disposal contractors charge, the difference between them charging to take away 100 or 1,000 litres, there probably isn't any difference because there's normally a minimum fee because they're sending a wagon. Um, so you need, to find, you need to find a relatively small one for that 1,000 litres. Um, if it's... If it's produced in connection with your own business, so provided it's your own butchery, your own pigs and everything else, this, and again, this is definitely case by case, so you will have to either retain a specialist or look into this. There are, there is in theory, in theory, no limit. That 1,000 litres doesn't apply. It's only if, you're, if you were, for example, cutting up pigs from somebody else or if the effluent was being produced elsewhere and you were bringing it back. In theory, there's no limit to what you can store. So you could have a 20,000 litre tank. And that that needs invest. I would investigate that on a case by case basis. And I would say for most people, it's easier to drop it in the sewer if you can. Or, or you know, provided it's always your own waste produced on your own site. You know, a 5,000 litre tank is not, is not ridiculous. You will probably have to, uh, during the registration process with the Environment Agency, you are obliged to demonstrate how you are protecting groundwater. So, you know, if you just have a plastic tank in the middle of a yard where somebody's tearing around with an AFOL tractor or something, uh, they're going to get upset. You know, they will expect, for example, a brick wall around it and bollards, and they will expect it to be a bonded tank. But that's about it. It's not a, it's not a particularly onerous thing to do. Um, you won't need a permit. If, uh, I would guess 99% of the cases here, you wouldn't need a permit. It's just a registration. And again, that's done online. I think it's free. And that's the easiest thing to do. And if you were if you were going to store, if you were going to store any amount, I would I would again top of my head, and depending on the size of these businesses, five thousand litres, because most tankers, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> most tanker businesses charge for a minimum of five cubic meters of material to be disposed of. So that will be your minimum charge. So above that, you'll start paying more. The problem is if you're only disposing of one cube, you'll still get charged for five. So just as, a, as an example, I'd go sort of 5,000 litres. It sounds like a lot, but if you start washing down a, a mid-sized butchery frequently, it's actually not a huge amount of water. Um, you can get through five cubic. If you think an IBC is a cubic metre of water, you can get through that pretty quickly when you're washing down butchery and butchery facilities, if you're using them every day, you know. Um, in terms of physical, the, the, the biggest sort of, um, what would be the word, the, the biggest box ticking exercise, you know, the actual, the actual registration is very straightforward. The key things are basically the physical construction of the, of the thing. So ceilings have to be, you can't be doing it in sort of a barn, you know, the ceilings have to be clean and easy, easy to clean and free from debris. Doors and windows that open outside have to have insect screens on them. 
which again have to be easily removed for cleaning. Floors have to be able to be disinfected. Now they specify smooth and in a good state of repair. Uh, good state of repair. I would also say, if if you are spending any money on anything, would be to have a seamless either to do it yourself, get somebody else to do it, a seamless floor to wall covering put in. So you will often see in abattoirs or indeed hospitals or anywhere else where the floor and the wall join is not where the flooring finishes. The flooring will be curved up the wall for six inches, perhaps, so that it can be easily washed down without material collecting in that joint. Now, that stuff, that can be done, you know, if you're going to if you're gonna have a shipping container to do it, which is, you know, fairly common or sort of a um, temporary building or something, you know, um, most of the people who refurb those type of things, you know, there are people who sort of... Um, there's a very good guy at Bristol who refurbs sort of chiller lorries into small-scale butchery units and stuff like that. They will put that in as a as a standard option. It's actually not that hard to do yourself if you're an enthusiastic DIYer. And this is this sort of a resin thing and a, and a continuous water floor covering. But that's I would always go with that. They don't specify continuous water floor covering, but if it isn't there, it's the first thing they'll pick up on. Uh, temperature control, obviously, for storing stuff either before it's cut up or afterwards. Temperature control has to have some sort of logging, data logging on it, so you can demonstrate compliance over time. The key thing with all of these things, as, as with any of this legislation, really, is not just to comply, but is to be able to demonstrably comply. So when they come in and go, well, what did you do last week? You can go, well, look, here are all the records of what we did. You know, here is all the chiller logging and stuff like that. Data logging, uh, temperature sensors, online, you know, 30, 40 quid, it will just sit in there for 12 months and take a temperature measurement every hour, and you can just download it on a laptop, you know, something like that. If you're using just a, you know, a, a fairly sort of straightforward, either chiller or cold room, you know, a lot of them will now have it built in anyway. But if you're using anybody, uh, well, not just anybody else, but even yourself, you know, suitable training for yourselves or for staff or for anybody who's helping <coughs> and insurances, obviously. Um, the insurance can be quite complex because it's it's both the butchery and the selling of the stuff. And some of the people who insure Butchers, as as a trade, can be quite uh, sniffy about insuring farm shops and that type of thing. But there are now so many farm shops of their own butchery. There are sort of specialist companies who will help with that. Um, we, uh, for example, you know, for our uh, on-farm killing, Blackfriars uh, are very, very good. We've used those before. I mean, they are just, they're a broker, but a lot of brokers have struggled with, as soon as you use the word firearms and insurance, uh, funnily enough, everybody sort of runs for the hills and panics and doesn't want to speak to you, but they were very helpful. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry. What was the device that um, you referred to that measures the temperature and downloads to the laptop? Just, just a data logger. So um, we, we use, yeah, so we use, um, I think they're called Easy Log. USB, there are things called tiny tags. There are basically you just you go online and go temperature data logger, and you can probably find a thousand of them on Amazon. <laughs> and it'll be I'd, I'd, if you're going to buy a cheap one, buy two <laughs> so you can corroborate them. But that's about it, really. And it's just it's this ability not just to comply with the legislation, but to show that you are complying and you have been complying because that's you know, a complaint if a complaint comes in against you, it will normally be from a few weeks ago. So it's easy, it's better to go, well, well, we didn't poison those people and I can show you that our chiller was working properly and that type of thing, you know. Um, hand wash and changing facilities. Again, obviously hand wash is a, is a legal requirement, but changing facilities depend on if you have to change. They're not over-enthusiastic, for example, if you are 
you know, if you're on a small holding, they don't really want you putting your whites on and then walking across a dirty yard into your butchery unit. Do you know what I mean? To, to do that. So um, just be aware of that. At least have some sort of coat hooks. So even if there's a white coat that you never wear, just hanging on a coat hook inside the door, you know, that type of thing. And obviously dedicated footwear, you know, have, have a couple of pairs of white wellies in there that you only put on when you're doing that. Sorry, two seconds. I've already shut them in, lovely. Sorry, just seen my other half go past to shut the chicken. Um, consequences, it seems very, very heavy-handed, very dramatic. It is very true. They do prosecute people, and they do prosecute people fairly fairly uh, vociferously for this type of thing. The fines, if it was a, if it was an honest mistake, tend not to be too bad. Uh, but they do lock people up. If if people are, you know, doing sort of shady things or are operating unlicensed, the FSA are quite enthusiastic on prosecutions because they effectively have a, a target is the wrong word, but they have a requirement to, you know, to, to show that they're doing their job. Uh, they tend to be going after people who are, you know, remixing thousands of tons of rotten meat for McDonald's or something like that. But, you know, they'll occasionally um, lash out at a smaller one as well. Um. As I said before, I would I would take take advice if you're going to set one up and you're not 100 confident on it. Take some advice from from some expert or from somebody who's already in the trade. Um, the FSA are, are normally very helpful over the phone. Um, they will offer advice. There is lots of good stuff on the website. There is actually a thing called License Finder on the Generic Gov website where you can type in you know what do you do and it will give you a list of the things you may require a license for related to that. Not always 100 foolproof, but some of good starting point. Um, local authorities vary, I'll be brutally honest, uh, across the country. Some of them are incredibly helpful and some of them just don't want to speak to anybody at all about anything. Um, but as the FSA is the national enforcement body, generally if the FSA are on board and they're happy, uh, your local authority don't have a leg to stand on unless it's something like change of use for planning. And that's a whole, whole other, another thing. But just be aware that, you know, we have had projects that um, basically they've they wanted to stop us from doing them and they've had nothing else to go to. So they get the planners involved and that's the end of it. They shut it down straight away. And so I, I would, you know, for a lot of you, it's probably not a material change of use. But again, I would just check if you're if you're doing anything that you think might be a borderline thing. I would ask the question. I know a lot of people are of the mindset that if you don't ask the question, you can't be told not to do it but that will not stop them from prosecuting you. And if you invest a lot in facilities and hardware and that type of thing, and, it, you know, even small scale, you know, these things can be expensive. And then, you know, some vociferous individual from the local authority comes along, it can cause problems. We've, we have equally had really good experiences in some areas with them and with some individuals who are very supportive of these things and are very, very helpful. And they are required, obviously, to give you advice. So, you know, if they, if they do drag their feet, uh, make a bit of noise, uh, but if you can't get any joy with them, so long as the FSA are on side, are happy that you're compliant, basically the, the local authority will um, will not sort of have too much to do. Um, like I said, there are some some things that can be reduced for smaller businesses. So the, the thing about approval, individual approval of a, of a food business is, you know, I think it's within a 50 mile radius. Don't quote me on that. If you're only selling products to people from a 50 mile radius or sort of within a 50 mile radius of your of your site so people either coming to you or sort of delivering out 50 miles um i think if i'm right you don't require approval for example all of these things all of these exemptions so the same with the um, the same with the environment agency exemption for uh, effluent that's produced on site uh, 
even if you're working under an exemption, you find online and you find, for example, on the Environment Agency website or, or the Food Standards Agency say you're exempt, I would always have written evidence of that from somebody, you know, from Food Standards Agency. I would have the email, I would save it, print it out, file it, so that if somebody from a local authority, you know, because, because this law enforcement is kind of tiered, um, and because some people, as I say, can be vociferous seemingly just to prove they're doing their job or just for sport, I would I would always make sure you have that as written evidence um, and and the person's name on there and stuff like that. So you can always bring it back and say, look, you know, such and such, the FSA has said this is okay, you know, therefore. And, it, and if it turns out that that person has misinterpreted the legislation, the worst thing that will happen is you will be required to jump through another hoop, you know, rather than being prosecuted. Um, so, yeah, never assume an exemption applies. Wait until somebody has, has specifically looked at your individual case and has agreed with it. Yeah, the environment agency, the local people can not, are normally fairly helpful. Sometimes it can take a long time to get through those layers of bureaucracy to a local individual, local permitting officer, and some of them will say, oh, well, you need to put in a pre-application. At that point, <laughs> speak to another industry expert because the pre-application is for a permit and that will take years and cost tens of thousands of pounds and it's just not relevant to what you're doing. Uh, that's the end of it, black screen. So. Any questions? Let me just stop sharing. There's um, one or two here, Dom. One's with regards to um, why do abattoirs, you know, test for trichinella? Because I think that the last case was what in the 1970s. Um, so, but they one don't of, test for ASF. One of our other guests might be able to help me with this. Uh, trichinella, I think, for most of them, is done on a risk assessment basis. Uh, so. I think that will be for basically most people sign something that says my pigs have never been outside and my pigs are wormed and therefore they don't test. So I find it very odd. I mean, it is a food safety, it is a serious food safety concern, which is probably why they test for it. Whereas obviously African swine fever, uh, as unpleasant and dangerous as it is to the national herd, doesn't really pose a risk to people. You know, um, so my guess would be that is the reason that that is prioritised in abattoirs. Um, it, again, in the commercial industry, it's not my understanding. And, and again, feel free, anybody who is here, I'm not pointing at any one individual uh, to correct me if I'm wrong. But is um, most of them are done on a risk assessment basis, so they're never tested. They they sign something that says they have that assessment. Are you going to say something? Yeah, sorry, the children are just going to bed. Um, yeah, um, yeah. Obviously, the, on a commercial scale, yeah, we have to sign a declaration to, like, like what you described. Um, but yeah, it, I think it's probably um, came mostly due to the food safety issue with it. Um, but yes, ASF is obviously a serious problem. But um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And it is, you know, we were talking about this before the call. Um, ASF is common people like. I don't want to sound negative. I've been having these conversations with the National Pig Association with AFRA and everybody else, as I imagine Louise has as well. You know, it is coming. And the thing to do would be to make sure you've got damn good fencing to make sure you are ready for it, you know, to make sure you've got disinfectant, even if you're not using it day to day, because the day it lands in this country, you will not be able to find disinfectant on that sex prayers for love nor money. You know, it would be to put, if you can double fence, double fence. If you're in an area with wild boar, triple fence and, and shoot anything that moves. Um, I, I think it probably will land in this country and there will then be some, it will be very unpleasant. The problem is at the minute that because there is no, there are no border checks realistically coming this way, 
Um, and because a lot of meat comes in, I mean, the main concern um, I have, and I think the MPA have qualified this as of AHDB, is that there are um, there are sort of well-known laybys in the UK where the guys sort of when they land in the UK from Eastern Europe will park up overnight to have their dinner and, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of home-cured meat there, dry-cured meat that isn't cooked, which obviously runs a risk very, very much of carrying ASF. You've only got to throw a little bit out of your lorry cab into a bin and a wild boar pick that up and then, you know, go somewhere near an outdoor unit and we've got ASF in this country, you know. I mean, the last time it wasn't anything near that dramatic, you know, somebody threw something a ham sandwich, but um, there is a very there is a very strong risk of it coming into the country. And because we have some of these high-risk laybys that have been identified are sort of, there's a great big outdoor pig unit here and there's a big wild boar population here. It, it is particularly high risk, I think. Um so the thing to do is is not to believe that it will be held out centrally, but is to as much as possible secure your own holdings against it and prepare, you know, sort of prepare to batten down the hatches. I would say that to anybody. It is obviously a veterinary thing, and I'm not qualified to give veterinary advice. I will say that as I always do on these webinars. I think that's a um, I think that's a really good point. Is just um, some biosecurity points. Um, some of the recent outbreaks in Germany and Italy, I mean, it's very much, um, I mean, it jumped something like 500 kilometers. That is human spread. That is not the wild boar population spreading yeah. it. And like Dom said, it really is going to just take somebody to throw a ham sandwich to one of your outdoor pigs. Um, the ASF virus is not killed by cooking, by curing, by freezing. So um, it's very good at, um, surviving um and it is just a case as as dom says just batten down the hatches and and really tighten up your external biosecurity how what what is your thought about um there was a release on reuters i can't remember a couple of days ago that they said that there was an asf vaccination that has been um, made in vietnam and i think they're trialing it testing it and it has been tested in america it's it's been collaboratively um, produced between America, between I can't remember which university and um, and Vietnam because it's obviously a huge yeah. issue in Asia. The only thing I would say is there there are available ASF vaccines, um, but again, correct me if I'm wrong, Louise. After are the conversations I've had with APHA about them is they are not overly enthusiastic, and part of the reason for that is that because if you start using those vaccinations, basically every country we export to will just say no, we're not having it. Exactly. It's um, we, we like to be in a state where we can we can say we're free of this disease. So disease freedom is a big thing for um, exporting to this country. So as soon as you vaccinate, you lose that disease freedom as such. So they won't be very keen to do it. And it will just it will depend on if it's if it's a I, I actually haven't read the article in enough detail if it's a different type of vaccine or it's a, I think it is a. It's live and attenuated, I think, the new one, which I think will still mean that they will say, no, we don't want it because it's a because it's a risk. There is a, there is a lot of planning going on. So there are sort of very routine calls at the minute between APHA and a group of producers, AHDB and the uh, Pig Vet Society and various others looking at, you know, uh, from worst case scenario, how do we shoot 20,000 pigs in the space of a day to, you know, if it comes in, how can we control it? How do we zone, et cetera, et cetera. And there is, there is a lot of work being done in the background um but you know none of that will be you know they will take no responsibility for your individual holdings you know and as ever it's it comes down to biosecurity just best practice biosecurity it's always difficult to make an outdoor unit biosecure but it's not impossible 
um, you know, good vermin control, good feed management, that type of thing. Just, just really back to basics. And I will say, you know, I, like I say, I go into units where I'm not allowed my own underpants, but equally I go into commercial units where I'm not allowed my own underpants. I have to shower in and I have to be three days pig free. And then the owner will drive a Land Rover straight into the middle of the yard that's just been down to the local agri-factor. And, and that's, in a, that's in a dysentery outbreak area, you know, because people sometimes who, who are biosecurity obsessed um, forget that, you know, the biggest risk is the person who comes onto the unit most often. You know, that's the biggest risk. The reality is, yeah, okay, you know, we can say consultant or your vet maybe because they visit different units. But we're, you know, I'm often only on these units two or three times a year. The person who's the biggest risk is the person who's like coming into contact with your pigs every single day. You know, it's just a numbers game, really. Um, and if you have pigs near a footpath, I would, you know, shoot ramblers. I'm not really sure. Whatever you can do about that, you know, is is just somehow perhaps alternative fencing to prevent people from throwing them bits of food and stuff like that. Anybody who's had horses would have had horses that people have given apples to and that sort of tedious nonsense, you know. Um, and it's very, very true in the pig industry as well. Um, yeah, I, do, I do find it quite concerning because um, we, we've got a... The agricultural shows are now in full swing um, and you see the public walking around the, the pig pens with their children, carrying them over the side to have a look at them. And they've got a sandwich or they're eating crisps and there's nobody there at the shows to, to say, Alex, it, that that is a worry also. And I, I vociferously, uh, the presentations we've done for the Welsh pig thing, you know, we did something on feed and... I think I managed to get into it, don't feed them food, you know, human food into feed, farrowing, ventilation and another presentation I do because there is a huge concern that because because that is, if you took a ham sandwich onto a commercial unit, most commercial producers would, you know, beat you to within an inch of your life. It's just not acceptable yeah. at all. The concern is that, you know, it could easily, there are, there are still plenty of people who have two or three pigs who throw them kitchen scraps. And that could that could well be exactly where it could. It doesn't have to be, you know, some giant evil lorry driver from Poland who throws them, you know. It, I mean, it is very high risk there because of the density of, of pigs that it could spread into. But, you know, once it gets into a population in this country, be it wild boar, be it small scale, be it large scale commercial, it will be it, basically we will, you know, we will track it and we will have to dispose of those animals but effectively it will have to run its course as we have seen in the other countries. You know, it, it, you, can, you, can, you can't follow it fast enough or contain it. You know, the plans are to contain it, but again, Louise, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe that will be possible. It won't. Um, they did some modeling actually with this. And I think with the amount of movements that they looked at between wagons and people and pigs, and I think it, from, from, from the ASF entry in this country to us actually being able to clinically identify it and diagnose it they're estimating it'll take us at least two weeks yeah. by that point it's, it's out of control it's so it's so far beyond yeah. yeah um and the last time you know as well as the pig costs you know there's a very real human cost some of the guys who were involved in some of that control work last time it, it it has a real a real impact on everybody you know in terms of mental health and everything else so it is a it is a serious concern and it, it's nice to hear really because you know the commercial industry i will make no secret of it points at small-scale producers and pedigree pigs and everything else is where it's going to come from um but it's good to hear you guys talking about it because it is it is really important that that message just gets out there to everybody um and it, but unfortunately it will it will either be 
you know, something out of a lorry thrown to a wild boar, or it will be somebody who throws some kitchen scraps to a pig or something that gets contaminated. And this is the concern with the swill, you know, the, the pig idea wishing to refeed swill and we can control it and cook it and all of these things. It's just too high risk, which is why the MPA, I think, have just blanket said, look, we we totally, we, we don't support this at all. So. Um, is there anything that failed to one, We've got one more question, and I think we should um, wrap it up because I've seen lots of people have uh, had to go off and put children yeah. to bed, put their turkeys away and, and so on. But it's just one last thing, which we do again get asked a lot on the OSB um, Revy Pork Group, which is um, if you suspect that you get the wrong carcass back, what should you do and what checks, controls are in place at the abattoir? So... Uh, large scale and indeed small scale abattoir. I mean, the smaller the abattoir, the more likely you are to get your own pig back, right? And, and send it here on a day when not lots of other people have sent pigs in. Uh, send in one pig at a time. Uh, but the the thing, I, I mm, traceability even in large abattoirs can be quite challenging. So basically they count the pigs in. So they go, Mr. X has sent 200 pigs. Therefore, the next 200 hooks have Mr. X's pigs on. Mrs. Y has sent 150, therefore the next 150 have Mrs. Y's pigs on. When animals then come off the line to go into rectification, for example, or they fall off the hooks, as indeed does happen sometimes, they then they then can get slightly confused. As much as I said, don't, don't slap mark, if you want to be 100% sure it's your pig that comes back and they're cutting the tags out, the only thing to do is to slap it because they can't remove that. And it's, and it's to slap it very clearly because... People who slap 200 pigs every day get it very badly wrong. I would just say, if you're going to do any slapping, make sure your best practice and everything else um, would be to slap mark it because that cannot be removed. It's an indelible mark. Uh, and is is to specifically tell them when it goes in that they are not to skin that animal because that that is the other reason they could be skinning pigs is to, um, is to obfuscate which pig it is. Uh, but I would say... Yeah, a slap mark. Unfortunately, the problem with slap marking, particularly good quality meat, is you you do bruise the meat. I mean, you're only going to bruise the shoulders, but it's it's not ideal. Um, some abattoirs will allow you to follow your animals through the abattoir if you've got the stomach for that. Uh, that's the other way of that's the other way of being absolutely assured you're getting yours back. Um, and it's to have an open conversation with them. You know, if you think you've been sent the wrong pig back. Have a frank I try not to be too accusatory, as is my, to be honest, is my immediate recourse. But um try to be as collaborative as you can, have that conversation with them, yeah, see what they say. I would like to think, I mean, if you guys are, I would guess you represent quite a large number of the of the Oxford Sandy Black Keto producers. Uh, just off the top of my head, it may well be worth having a conversation openly with each other. If one of you is sending three pigs into an abattoir on one day, just make sure nobody else is as well because then it should mean that at least between the Oxford Sandy Blacks, it should be pretty clear if they've accidentally given me back a lamb race, you know. Um, you know, it, it would certainly be easier to track pigs if nobody else is sending the same pedigree animals in on the same day. Um, and the other thing to do is to ear notch. Um, I'm not a huge fan of ear notching because we have problems with ear necrosis in some units. Uh, but you, you, Or tattoo, ear tattoo. Are, are you tattooing ears anyway? Tattoos, um, yes, but it's predominantly is tagging, Dom. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I hate ear tattooing, and we've we've managed to move the whole Canadian pedigree industry away from it because it's banging the arse. But, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the only problem with the tag is it can be removed, whereas an ear tattoo is permanent, you know. But they are also giant mm -hmm. banging the arse. Okay. Super. <clears throat> well, I'm just conscious of time. Thank you very, very much, 
Dom. This has been a very enlightening. Yeah. I've learned, you know, I've done lots of research and reading over the years, and this has been so enlightening. Lots of great information. I'll just ask if anyone's got a final question, please, please raise your hand and ask. Otherwise, we'll look to uh, to close the call. And there's Jane. Hello, Jane. You come off mute. Come off mute and ask. There you go. Hey, there you go. Sorry. <laughs> um, thanks, Dom. That was fantastic. Really, really pertinent to us because we are literally just in the process of setting up a butchery unit. Um, I've got. I have actually got a couple of questions. I'll be dead quick. Um, so, you know, you were talking about the waste if you were doing on-farm slaughter. Mm -hmm. What about the waste from just general butcheries? It's not like the, the guts, it's just all your... Trim and stuff like that. So so if it's produced in line with your own business, you, you should probably... Um, you would need to check that with the local environment, well, with your local environment agency officer. You should register with the environment agency. But there is there is an exemption. You basically, you can hold as much waste as is generated in connection with your business, provided it's not sort of plutonium or something like that, for up to twelve months. Now, obviously, they are they are quite tight on food waste, uh, meat waste, that type of thing. To have it removed both from the working area as quickly as possible, mm -hmm. and then from site as fast as possible to discourage um, discourage. Yeah, absolutely, um, vermin and stuff. It would also be worth discussing it with whoever is taking your waste away. Um, that it's going to contain meat, but the reality is, you know, it, it's generally just deemed as a refuge at that point. It's only when you're when it's still animal byproduct. So if you're trimming meat, which I guess is what you're talking about, and yeah. bones and stuff like that. Yeah. Bones can be a bit of a, gray, a bit of a grey one, and some waste haulers can tell me about it. But most of the time, if what you're talking about is, is meat trim, it's, it's general refuse. Um, it, we, so we, we wouldn't need like a separate commercial bin. That and a, you will you will find totally apart from all the licensing and everything else you will find your council if you start putting what they call trade waste in your own domestic bin they will get very arsy with you very quickly yeah, yeah. so, so we will need say, the contract with, yeah. the, with the removal yeah but it's yeah. i mean that's not necessarily a legal requirement uh it's just that the council will have something there'll be something in your poll tax oh god sound like from the 80s you know in your council tax that says you're not allowed to put trade waste in your bin yeah, yeah. Um, because we've had it from putting you know like nuts and bolts in there they get upset over time you know? but yeah i would i would say speak to a waste speak to a waste haulier. um the effluent yeah store on site if you can or or discharge the sewer and have a permit so the the effluent because it's a mobile unit what we yeah. were thinking of doing was um obviously when it was in use to have the drain into like an IBC tank and then daily dump that into our sewer. Yes. That's okay. Obviously with, with the permit. With the permit in place. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's fine. fine. So we're not classed as storage. So as long as you're not so long as you're not moving it, transporting it off site. No, no. It's literally fine. from from where, where the unit's going to be, there is no yeah. drain near it that we can put in. So yeah. we're gonna literally plug the pipe into an IBC unit and then each, each day take it to the manhole, the manhole yeah. and, and dump there. it into that. Yeah, what they will possibly, if you do end up being inspected, and it's possible you will be, yeah. they will expect to see something uh, protecting that IBC. So is it either a portable bund, which is kind of a bit like a, a very expensive paddling pool, right. uh, or something to stop somebody from driving into it, because IBCs are obviously only single-skinned. 
So if somebody, for example, because I'm guessing you'll have to pick it up with a telescopic or something, the, the question they would ask is, if you stick a pallet tine through the side of that, what prevents that trade effluent from contaminating the ground and then the groundwater okay. and everything else? Yeah, and because we are also, um, we're not just going to be cutting our own meat, we're offering a service to other smallholders as well. Yeah. Is it right we need to register as a cutting plant? I, yeah, yeah, I would, so I would make that clear when you register as a food business that you're not just dealing with your own product. They're actually, in terms of the legislation, like in the letter, it doesn't really differentiate to a huge degree between the two. You know, a butcher is a butchery because obviously butchers are, de- are cutting animals from, from all over. Mm. Um, if the animal if the animals are coming in dead and have been stamped and they're from a, that's the only thing is obviously you're going to need to go through all of that to make sure. Uh, and if you do, for argument's sake, if you did any home kill, don't. This is the other thing I would say to everyone who should have made that clear. Do not cut home kill. You're not allowed to cut home kill in a butchery. Obviously, that's that's a huge no no. Yeah. Um, but if it's a licensed a licensed food premises, uh, and actually, I would if you are going to do home kill. Sorry, if you are having a butchery, a licensed butchery on farm, I would almost say it's not worth the hassle of doing home kill uh, for that mm. purpose because you will need to be able to demonstrate where that meat went, um, and they get very very upset. It is very similar to the animal byproduct stuff about um, if you're. We had an issue where we looked at a site for killing basically large numbers of animals for disposal. They expect you to weigh in the live pigs and weigh out the dead pigs to prove that we're not sort of hiving off animals to, to sort of bleed out into the market somewhere. Um, so, yeah, make sure everything is stamped. <laughs> That's the key yeah. thing when it comes in. Um, and that you have good, you know, again, good good records is the key thing, is to make sure you keep very clear records. If you can weigh stuff in and weigh stuff out, that, that would be a... So I guess you'll be weighing stuff when you cut it anyway and package it, will you? Yeah. yeah. And, and if you have a rail, uh, are you set up the rails presumably in the cutting room? Uh, it, well, no. It's a it's a mobile it's a mobile unit, so the actual cutting room won't have rails in. But the chiller unit that we've got that's separate that does have rails. Okay. I just I'd be inclined then just to just to put some load tails on the table or something and just weigh just weigh the carcass when it comes in. Yeah. And just keep keep a little bit of a tally of that for yourselves, even if it's literally just a notepad that shows that you've had X amount of carcass in from a from a customer and X amount of meat out. And if there's any trim, weigh the trim as well and, and make a note of that in the third column. And then you have all of that evidence that says, you know, we're not, everything that's coming in is going back out. You know, it's all traceable. So if it was weighed at the abattoir, because when we, we always take our things, I always ask for dead weight, so I always keep the labels off the yeah. anyway. Would that suffice to, to say I, what meat's coming Yeah, I would, I would say so, provided it's a cold dead weight. Yeah. Um, yeah, that would be fine. And they do the, the cold dead weight, they do from a fixed calculation from the hot dead weight anyway, but yeah, that would be fine. Because they're trade, they'll be um, stamped scales. Yeah. Trade stamped scales, so um, you're not selling any of your own product or are you you're going to be selling your own product as well yeah yeah so we'll be we'll be marketing our own product for direct sales but in order to fund the the butchery for us to do that service to other small holders as well we won't be selling their product all their product will go back to them for okay. them to sell directly to the public yeah they you may find if you're selling stuff by way which i guess is you will be I don't know if you've looked into this. Um, there was a little bit of a, of a thing about this a few years ago, whether it was the case or not for small scale, but you may need trade stamp, weights and measures stamp scales. So they, they come and the ministry effectively signs them off. 
Right. So they're just slightly more expensive and effectively the, the knob in the back you can twiddle to recalibrate them has a, a padlock through it effectively. Yeah. yeah, and it's tagged and they have to be recalibrated, I think, every year by a trade approved by a ministry approved person because you are selling product by weight. Yeah. It has to be a, a, an approved set of scales. So but yeah, it's as long as it's coming in, that's really for your own record keeping. And it's just if if they start to they can be quite funny with with food with meat businesses, um, particularly meat businesses that are set up on agricultural premises, because they have they are absolutely obsessed with the fact that we're all going to be out shooting diseased animals and running them through abattoirs. And I don't know where it comes from, to be honest. Um, but and there is still some of that that ha- you know there is definitely some of that that goes on in this country, but it's so small compared to everywhere else. You know, um, but yeah, keep keep good records. The yeah. effort and make sure you have a, a permit. They will probably. They may not ask you to have a meter if you're going to if you're going to hive it off into an IBC because it's a fairly effective way of measuring it. Mm-hmm. But make sure the IBC you can demonstrate to the environment agency that the IBC is. It's safe. Uh, we've got a backup if anything happens. Absolutely, if it's if it leaks or something like that. Yeah, and and again, you know, these things they don't necessarily have to be in place all the time. But you have to be able to show that you can sort of deploy it fairly quickly and. Yeah and contain that it's, a, it's just effectively a groundwater protection thing yeah. and that uh, it will be worth having if you google groundwater protection code you will be able to find the bits that are relevant to you and have a look through it and it's pretty it's pretty digestible stuff and it's it's real common sense stuff it's just you know don't throw it all in the pond by accident basically and don't what i will say is if you are working near a drain don't 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 operate near a drain basically it's the thing to say is don't operate so if you do have a, an escape a leak you can contain it with sandbags or whatever else, and it doesn't just, in an uncontrolled fashion, end up in a stormwater drain and go straight into a river. That will be the thing I want to see. You know that you're working. I think it's 15 meters away, but don't quote me. We're nowhere near a drain, hence why we've got to we've got to off it into an IBC tank. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's amazing. Thank you very much for asking no my questions. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. Thank you very much, everyone. Um, it's pushing half past nine, so. I just want to thank Dom again for incredible knowledge and, you know, a huge share of information. It's been very knowledgeable. And thank you for everyone that's taken the time out of their evenings to attend as well. Much appreciated. Well, there you go. That was a very interesting evening. Um, I'm sure you'll agree. Some, you know, a plethora of information shared there by Dominic is clearly extremely knowledgeable um, in that particular area. So thank you again, Dominic, for that. Um, well, that's it for this edition of the podcast. Um, keep tuned. Um, until next time, happy pig keeping.